Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today, once again, is Kat Rosenfield. Kat, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Kat Rosenfield. I am a freelance culture writer and novelist, and uh, recently penned an essay for the National Review that I think we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, so that's going to be our main topic. Um, the headline, at least on the web version, is why I keep getting mistaken for a conservative. So let's see. So usually, often when there's an essay like this, I'm talking to some other show, I say, well, sort of like, what's like, you give like sort of the background, how this piece came together. And that's actually part of the piece itself is how how the piece came together. How did how did Kat Rosenfeld end up writing for <laughs> National Review, the you know premier intellectual conservative journal in America? Yeah, that's a funny story. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I received an email from Rich Lowry, who is an editor or executive editor of the National Review, um, asking if I would like to go to lunch. And I have a kind of a personal policy as a, a freelance writer. Um, I don't turn down paid work for the most part, and I don't turn down lunch invitations. If you ask me to lunch, I will go because um, I love <laughs> to eat lunch. <laughs> and um, so I, I went to this lunch and I did not ask what I was doing there. And I sort of thought that Rich would tell me, um, but then all of this time passed and like the food had be been eaten and the plates had been cleared and we'd kind of covered all of the polite conversation topics that two writers might. And, um, and he hadn't mentioned it still. And I finally was like, Rich, what am I doing here? And he said, oh, this is awkward. And I'm sorry, I was going to ask you about being a columnist for the National Review, uh, but apparently you're a liberal. And it was <laughs> like, oh, yeah. So I, you know, I kind of laughed. And I said, yeah, this is not actually the first time that somebody has made this mistake. And uh, he said at the time, that's really interesting. And this might be an interesting topic for an essay. And I didn't really think much of it. But then maybe a couple of months later, I got an email asking if I would, in fact, write that essay um, as part of this initiative that they were doing at the National Review in combination with something called the Pacific Fund that was designed to um, facilitate stuff that's sort of offbeat for the National Review, stuff that's a little bit outside their wheelhouse. And so this essay was one of those pieces. And I said yes, because again, I don't turn down paid work, especially if it's well paid. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, as a f freelance writer that, you know, you, uh, you would be foolish to, to turn down paid work um, <laughs> you know, in, in this economy, as, as people say. Um, okay, so... Well, let's let's then dive in, into the piece. Um, why why do you think people, including Rich Lowry, uh, who you know, professional conservative writer and pundit, uh, why do people think that you are conservative and 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 <laughs> that, but you are not conservative, at least according to you? Uh, yeah, I feel like that's a little bit snarky, Arya, but. Um... <laughs> But no, I'm not a conservative. I mean, by any reasonable definition of the word, I mean, it, and it really depends, I guess, on how you define conservative and how you define liberal, which is uh, in large part what this piece seeks to analyze. But the fact is, I am a free speech, bleeding heart liberal, always have been, and I suspect always will be because these are things that are very much in line with my kind of fundamental principles, things that guide me through the world. So um, the fact is, unfortunately, free speech and also some other kind of liberal values like due process um, have unfortunately taken on a right wing valence in recent years for reasons that I sort of understand, but not completely. And so as I am very vocally anti-censorship, um, I'm very vocally pro-due process, and these things have become unpopular on the left, so people see me as being critical of the left when I speak out in favor of them. And I think as a result, um, people conclude that I must be conservative. And that has a lot to do with the fact that right now, the way we do politics is sort of, um, it's really has, very little to do with what you stand for, you know, how we sort of ascribe these labels to people. Instead, what we've started to do, and I think Donald Trump is very much responsible for this, is we we look at, you know, what are you against? Who do you hate? And who hates you? And then we sort of reverse engineer a label for somebody from there. So instead of founding the, you know, a political label on 
what do you want policy wise? What are your values? We just say, what, what are you against? And that's that. Right. And I think there, there's a political science term, negative polarization that I think describes at least some version of this phenomenon where you're less, people are less voting for their preferred candidates as they're voting against their non-preferred candidate. And um, I believe political scientists have shown that this has grown, you know, over the past couple decades that people are more exercised about preventing their enemy or opponent from gaining power than they are about their preferred candidate getting power. So it's like, yeah, more excited by someone else who you don't like losing than someone you do like winning. That, that, that definitely rings true to me. Yeah, negative polarization is a good term. I've been calling it cultural oppositional defiant disorder, but that's like a whole <laughs> mouthful. Um, I, I like. I think I like the shorter one better. Yeah, I, I'm sure. Yeah, I think that is the term that some that like a political scientist would use. Um, and I mean, I don't. I don't know if this is a u- uniquely American phenomenon. It seems like maybe not. Um, and maybe <laughs> the, probably the internet is feeding this in some ways. I mean. So there's so many things, there's so many ways that the internet and social media especially have made, have changed politics, a lot of ways for the worse, in my opinion. And one is just, you're exposed to a lot more people's thoughts and feelings and expressions than you ever were before. You know, in the pre-online era, you would, you know, hear people in your family and social circle or at work and aside from that like you know maybe uh, you'd hear someone on the street who was standing on a soapbox or something but, but that person was probably crazy and you were um anything else was mediated by like the gatekeepers in the media you know the letters to the editor even or the callers on you know talk radio were still passing through the gatekeeper of some sort and so that's that's all changed. That's all gone. The gatekeepers are totally gone. Anyone can sound off about anything. And yeah, I think it's sort of like unnatural that we are exposed. If you're an online person, at least, um, we're exposed to so many people's so many people talking. Like this is not how you know. This is not like how humans evolved in hunter gatherer societies, and it's not how most of human history unfolded before online. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think you're really onto something. You know, basically what happened with social media is it gave us a little window into the contents of people's heads. And it turns out that they're up to some kind of weird shit in there, right? Oh, yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, way way stranger than I think the average person would have predicted. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't know. But yeah, is every I mean, there's a question like is everyone really like this? Is it just the people or it's a self-selecting group? Because I assume there are still some people who go about their normal lives and aren't posting their deranged thoughts for anyone to view. Like, I I, don't, I would hope that's like a majority of people, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Um, well, I think there's maybe an important distinction to draw between deranged and right. disagreeable. You know, the fact is that what I think we're getting a window into is not necessarily like people's interior insanity. Most people are perfectly decent and perfectly reasonable. But what social media does is it allows them to air publicly and beyond their immediate circle of intimate friends, the kind of thoughts that might otherwise be saved for, you know, you know, it's the kind of thing that you might say to somebody after you've like split a pitcher of beer at a local bar um, or the kind of thing, you know, you turn to your like spouse in your living room and you say, so, I mean, just off the top of my head, like I'm thinking about my own Twitter experience and, you know, I don't really spend a lot of time honestly uh, posting kind of genuine political thoughts. Mostly I just joke around, but there's mm-hmm. an enormous number of things that I post on Twitter, like jokes that I post on Twitter that I kind of beta test on my husband first, like, you know, we'll be watching TV (laughs) and I'll turn to him and I'll say something and he'll laugh and I'll be like, oh, I should post that. That was funny. You know, Um, and maybe that's a bad thing. I don't know. Well, you're 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 making me think of that. You're like the um, the mirror image of the wife guy or something. You're the um, 
you're the uh, husband gal who's <laughs> I am I am a husband gal unapologetically um which is probably is a cultural niche that that exists out there and deserves more attention and the wife guys deserve less attention okay but yes so or something like I mean I've you know I spend way too much time on Twitter it's rewired my brain in mostly negative ways and it's like you know, what is what is this utterance or a Facebook post or something like what what are these what is the equivalent it's sort of like you know, so you're you're saying it it's a joke you're telling to your husband in the privacy of your home, and he laughs. In the pre-internet era, that's like that's the end. Like, it, you know, if you are a writer, so perhaps you would write it down and do something with it later. But for the average person telling a joke to a loved one, it ends there and it's forgotten. And then we've you know, like the system has been created. We went along with it somewhat, but not entirely. We're like the the stray utterance now indicates you know like official proclamation from the um <laughs> from the press secretary or something that when it's really closer to like a hiccup or something so that it's all strange and i don't want to like complain about twitter for this whole conversation but i think that is i mean reading your essay i did wonder whether well how how much this is a real life phenomenon versus online phenomenon and those are two areas that maybe it doesn't make sense to speak about as being separate anymore because it's been totally merged. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was actually the the, the main thrust of the criticism that I got um, in response to this piece, which I, I did find admittedly frustrating, was people saying, well, of course people think you're a conservative. Just look at your tweets. And I, I just, I don't know. For one thing, I think it's kind of discouraging and, and sad um, that being willing to make light of some of the ridiculous stuff that's happening culturally right now is now seen as fundamentally political and, you know, and fundamentally conservative, which, I mean, I don't know, being able to make fun of things and like, be irreverent, that has always struck me as like an extremely liberal thing to do in general. Mm -hmm. um, and so this kind of pearl clutching scolding thing that's happening um, among some of the people who are sort of the most influential in left wing discourse, uh, that that's a little bit weird to me, um, and a little bit sad. But the other thing too, is that, you know, imagining that a person is kind of the sum of their tweets, how did we get to to that idea, um, you know, we've we've gone so fully from the internet is not real life to the internet is the only thing about you, and you know, in my case, like I write thousands and thousands of words a month that articulate what I actually believe, what my actual views are, what I actually think about the current state of the culture and of politics, um, you know, at length. So you don't really need to look at my tweets to understand what I think. And if you're only looking at my tweets to understand what I think, then you're not getting a complete picture. So, I mean, on top of everything else, it's just the laziness of it, honestly. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, Twitter encourages lots of like antisocial behavior, um, including like tribalism, us versus them, thinking, um, exaggeration, emotionalism. And so, you know, the the things that thrive on there are like you know this is the person we're all making fun of today and this person deserves to have their life ruined for doing something stupid like you know sharing a strange story about teaching a child how to um or not teaching a child how to open a can of beans you know like like just strange things happen on there that are objectively stupid and the incentive structure is bad you know actually this is a bit of a side note but i mean how are you thinking about Twitter these days know that Elon Musk owns the company and is running it seemingly somewhat erratically, but maybe he actually is a secret genius. But um, what, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, the past week or two weeks of Musk, Musk Twitter? Oh, gosh. I mean, <laughs> I see a lot of people panicking for reasons that I don't entirely understand. I'm just in the sort of wait and see stage of things. Uh, I don't really have strong feelings about it one way or another. I mean, he's inserting him. He's one interpretation of why he spent so much money on this website and company is that he wants attention constantly and he's inserting himself, you know, in a way that a, a normal CEO who is 
you know, doesn't want to make waves, wants to make money, um, would not do. So he's like turning himself into the main character who everyone is making fun of every day, um, which seems like a bad business decision. I don't know. But I mean, I've the last episode I did was on this entirely. I've been sort of after being on Twitter for over a decade, my perspective sort of like, you know, if, if this thing gets run into the ground, that's that's good for humanity, <laughs> for me in particular, mm-hmm. because I will, you know, re- re-enter normal society somewhat. Um, so I'm sort of rooting for it in the way that, you know, maybe a drug addict would root for the, the dealers to actually be in the, on the corner to actually be arrested. So the temptation wouldn't be as strong. Um, that is fascinating to me. And actually, you know, I don't, I wonder if you would mind me asking, um, because I've noticed, you know, the way that you use Twitter is is not really the same way that I use Twitter. And um, <laughs> I, you know, I have noticed that, like, um, how to put this, you you do engage in some kind of like bullying behavior on the platform, which I think, you know, is like, as you said, it's part of the incentive structure to kind of pile on the person that everyone is talking about. But I don't know. I mean, is it... How much do you think people are sort of responsible for the way that they choose to engage? Like, obviously, Twitter encourages antisocial behavior, but do we have to take the bait in that way? And like, when you talk about Elon Musk, like, quote unquote, making himself the main character, I had this kind of flash of like, look what you made me do, Elon, like you're making us abuse you. (laughs) I mean, how, how necessary is it to kind of respond to every single like temptation to take the bait by just taking the bait and running with it like over the what is the the thing where they bring up football for the touchdown the (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay so let me think you know there's there's a um a gif that is posted sometimes that's from the um the last mad max movie where it's the guy pointing up and saying that's bait yeah yeah um so people, you know, in the way that I think the way Twitter <laughs> promotes antisocial behavior, I definitely engage in some of that antisocial behavior. You know, when I said in the last episode where I was talking to someone uh, who's a professor who is more, you know, positive about Twitter as a whole, like the way it encourages me to act is not like this is not like human flourishing, like the positive aspects of my internal character, I think, are not brought forth by the system of rewards that twitter presents um you know this is actually interesting thinking about this from sort of a conservative liberal lens because (laughs) a liberal might say like why did someone commit a crime well we have to look at like the societal factors and the conservative might say well they committed the crime because they made bad choices or were a bad person at right. Their core. Personal responsibility. Yeah, that's yeah, a very so, conservative. So, <laughs> yeah, so sort of like, you know, if you act out on Twitter, you know, who do you have to blame? Do, do we have to blame <laughs> your yourself or the society? You know, we, we, we live in a society, but Twitter is not a society. I would say the incentives and disincentives that the platform presents. And so it, it has to be both. Like, you know, we're not we are not bots we are not automatons and and everything that is done on twitter is done freely and you can go touch grass as people others say or log off um on the other hand as twitter savant genius writer drill posted i will never log off like there's a (laughs) there's this bizarre subculture that rewards acting like an asshole and that's bad. And so I would, you know, if Elon drives the entire thing into the ground, or if he starts charging, which is one of the plans that's been floated, like, I think that'll be enough of a disincentive for me to be like, okay, time to like start reading books again. Like, this, you know, <laughs> this is not only rotting my mind, it's wasting my money. So I, that would also be, I think, be good. I don't know if it would be a good business decision for Twitter, but it would be good for me. I mean, I, 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 tr- I don't, you know, probably no one sees himself as the bully and the and the classic thing about the bully is like they were bullied themselves and <laughs> that's why they're lashing out. Um, I, so I, you know, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I would be a bully, but what bully says they are a bully, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I've pissed off like numerous people <laughs> on there in a way that if this medium did not exist, 
you know, I would never have access to um, the editor of the of the Federalist or something to like say something nasty to him. Like, I'm not going to write a, a letter and buy a stamp to say something nasty to someone who edits like a second tier <laughs> online magazine. Like, I would just do something else. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so, so yeah. So the incentives are messed up and. Like I'm definitely participating in the system that has been created. I, I don't know, but that was all off the top of my head. Well, what, how does that strike you? Yeah, no, I think that I think that you're speaking to something that is very true about Twitter, which is that it makes it exceptionally low cost to be caustic or even cruel to another person. Um, not just in terms of the effort it takes to do it, but in terms of the way that it shields you from the direct impact of what you're doing on the other person. You don't have to see their face when they read this thing that is really unkind, that maybe wounds them. You know, you don't have to to witness that. And so I think that that really does contribute to an enormous amount of pretty toxic behavior on the website. Yeah, and, and I was actually tweeting about this recently, you know, I it, I think Musk did say Twitter is the global public square or something. You know, in the actual public square, if you um, are being really nasty, like someone will probably try to punch you or like you will be escorted from the premises by a group of like people who are using physical coercion to get you out of there or yeah, you might or be you, arrested or something or you just lose friends you know or you lose business opportunities i mean this is or one you're, of the things you're that's... essentially a crazy like like who you know like that there's i guess there's that place is the trafalgar square in london where there's like a speaker's thing where people give speeches like who who is i don't know you know as much about london as i do about football <laughs> apparently <laughs> okay there's it, you know there's the classic like it, there's some ideal of like the public square where like Lincoln Douglas debates are happening and the great ideas are hashed out like this is not like the Athenian Agora like if someone who you didn't know was, was proclaiming on the street you would cross the street to get away from them because they're probably deranged you know like that's like that that's what I would do <laughs> like if I see someone spouting off on the street in New York City with their opinions I'm not stopping to listen I'm moving on with my life the technology yeah. now enables that anyone can spout off their opinions. They're probably not literally deranged, but like th- this is just not something that normal, like this is not really part of deliberative democracy. This is like cranks and yeah, the only, the thing it's closest to is like talk radio, so like sports talk radio, you know, calling in and complaining about how the owner doesn't know what he's doing with the team. Like uh-huh. that, that's not like an elevated form of discourse. That's, you know, sort of like, what you listen to when you're driving around. Yeah, um, that's a that's a good analogy. I was going to say that it's maybe closest in character to um, the town square from Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, where people <laughs> right. gather mostly just to, you know, engage in like discourse and, you know, and maybe um, commerce, you know, different kinds of transactions, different kinds of conversations. But occasionally you just gather around and arbitrarily stone someone to death. Yeah, and th- and then they were upon her. Isn't that the final line? I yes. mean, that that's that's you know a, a fictional proto version of an online mobbing. The, and you know, but, uh, there there is actual mob violence occasionally in America, but um, you know, <laughs> usually it's not targeted at one person. But the system and the technology has made it so that that does happen. Okay, so yeah, Twitter mostly bad in my opinion. <laughs> um, but how do you see this? Like, has online brain become offline brain? Like, we're taping this Wednesday morning. The election was yesterday. It seems like the Democrats somewhat beat, I mean, they did somewhat beat expectations because there was some idea that there would be a red tsunami or something. That definitely didn't happen. It seems like basically (laughs) status quo. Um, So, yeah. So is this all just like media brain, media people? the blue checks that we all hate <laughs> hate so much and normal people are continuing on with their lives. What do you think? Uh, that sounds about right to me. I do think that if you have even a foot in the real world, like if you have a job that doesn't involve being on the internet, if you have friends who are not extremely online, um, which is to say it's friends who are not on Twitter, then 
what happened in the election last night should not come as a surprise to you. But I think that the folks who hang out online all the day, kind of drinking news straight from the hose like a bunch of weirdos, um, you know, they've allowed the confines of their bubble to or they've mistaken the confines of their bubble for like a broader reality. And it's just not, you know, most people just don't interact this way. Most people don't care anywhere near as much about politics as mm -hmm. like, you know, even you or I do. Oh, that for, so, I definitely agree with that. I've been banging that <laughs> Trump for years. Yeah, if you follow politics online, you're already in like the, you know, 97th percentile at least of people in America who care about politics. The average American is not thinking about politics very often. They have a job, they have children, the kid needs to get to soccer practice sort of thing. Like, they are going on with their lives, largely not thinking about national political events. Mm -hmm, yeah. And I think this maybe speaks to, you know, there was a lot of kind of sneering online in the weeks leading up to the election about how people were worried about the price of gas when didn't they understand that democracy hung in the balance. And, you know, I understand and respect the attempt to sell that as a message and as a narrative, but normal people just did not buy that. They did not believe it. And, you know, the upshot of that is, um, you know, they also didn't believe the insane stuff that was coming out of the political right either. People just went out and voted the way that they basically always vote. And it was normal. And I think, you know, overall, what we've seen is a really great argument for not panicking. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. <laughs> so, so far, no one who the facts seem to show lost the election has come out and said, I didn't actually lose. There was a conspiracy against me. You know, the deep state <laughs> infiltrated the voting booths, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's crazy, but that did happen. Like that happened two years ago. So like, and then obviously a group of either deranged, deeply misled or nefarious Americans <laughs> assembled and tried to um, overturn the election on January 6th. So that's an insane fact that is deeply stupid. <laughs> like did happen. So I understand why, there's people who are, you know, have somewhat internalized what happened on January 6th, a unique and bizarre event, and we're worried about it. Like, that's that makes sense to me. Yeah, at the same time, the price of gas and the price of milk, like, these are material facts that the average American who drives and drinks, you know, milk with their morning breakfast has to contend Drinking with. and driving, drinking milk and driving. <laughs> yes. It, but this is also sort of like, a weird online meta argument where it's like, you know, if you, if, if the voter cares more about the price of gas than our sacred democracy, then like they're a bad person and they should be shunned. And, you know, like, I don't think normal people are thinking about it this way. That This is like discourse about things that are not happening. Like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And like I mean, how, how are we talking about these things? How are we framing these things? Is like things political consultants think about and online gives anyone the chance to play p political consultant or even like become one if they're sort of a rando and <laughs> have some yeah. correct opinions. So, I mean, for what it's worth, I think it's actually a very good thing that most of the country is not on Twitter, because I think that if they were and they saw the way that the sort of chattering class talks about ordinary people, that we would have probably seen a red wave just triggered, triggered by, you know, <laughs> all these people who are like, okay, I feel alienated. I'm going to vote for the party that doesn't treat me with absolute like withering contempt. That's possible. I mean, yeah, I, I agree. It's a good thing that the majority of Americans do not use Twitter. And I've, my pet theory is like way fewer Americans actually do use Twitter than like Elon Musk thinks at least. I mean, there, there was something that was leaked shortly before he actually acquired the company that was like, what Twitter calls a power user is someone who posts three to four times a week. I mean, let that sink in. Like if, you know, <laughs> I would call that, you know, from the perspective of sort of like the weird circle that we are both vaguely in, you know, that's like a dilettante three or four times a week. Like, what are you doing? You know, like yeah, you poser yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, like that. That's like a, a pathetic reply guy three to four times a week. You know, like I'm, I'm getting like three to four an hour. Like, you know, so like, I, I said there's like two or three million people in America who use Twitter. That's 1%. And mm -hmm. it's like distorted people. Some of these people are have power because they're journalists or quite rich <laughs> as Elon Musk is, but it really distorts, I think it distorts reality 
yeah more, way more people are on facebook obviously um yeah okay well let's let's talk a little bit more let's try to stop talking about twitter i said i think i already Thank said you. let's, yeah, let's not talk about twitter <laughs> it's it's a black hole that drags us in but let's let's talk about speech and the censoriousness of certain people on the left versus pe people on the right who are embracing free speech more which I that definitely is, has happened over the past. I mean, 2016 will be the inflection point, I guess, but even before that, um, and, and sort of like trying to get Joe Rogan fired from Spotify would be an example of this, which you talk about. Do you, I mean, I feel like it's, it's possible that this is receding somewhat, but, but I don't know. We'll, we'll please talk more about this, this division between you know, free speech, Joe Rogan type and the, you know, finger wagging, um, like liberal Karen or, or something like that, who wants to get everyone in trouble. Sure. Um, so I guess, you know, the thing that struck me about what happened with Joe Rogan and the reason why I used it as an example was that it was such a remarkable inversion of the dynamic that I grew up with when there was this sort of organized machinery on the right to try to suppress ideas um, and art and so on that they found distasteful. Then, you know, fast forward to 2022 and you had that same machine kicking into high gear on the left um and you know joe rogan became like this kind of proxy war um over you know what you were allowed to say in times of national emergency um which and i think in some cases was a sort of a cynical ploy just to you know to shut him down because people find him gross for other reasons um but you know, not only did you have like a bunch of aging hippies from like the original Woodstock free speech, <laughs> free love area uh, era suddenly kind of coming together and trying to um, extort the removal of an independent content creator from a private platform. Uh, you also had the White House weighing in in a way that I think would have caused an absolute like torrent of shrieking outrage if it had happened during the Trump administration aimed at, you know, at, at somebody else. Um, so it's mostly just sort of the inversion that that strikes me about that. And yeah, you know, I think that basically, um, you know, power abhors free speech because free speech is ultimately a tool that is most useful to people who don't have power, who are a minority, who have less popular views and who don't have the weight of like a cultural hegemony behind them and so just as the right did not appreciate free speech and free expression when it was happening you know kind of counter to them in the 80s and 90s now the left doesn't appreciate it when the shoe is on the other foot and they are using many of the same tactics to try to kind of shut it down you know this is dangerous this is harmful to children all of all of this rhetoric that is so familiar if you paid attention to it you know like when it was people going after south park or whatever in the 90s like it's it's basically the same um you know at least in fundamental ways and i find that really interesting mm -hmm. i think you know, I, I think there are like since I don't know if we want to go like censoriousness or anti free speech or something impulses on both on both sides. You know, I mean, in the 90s, yeah, there was I mean, like the um, Giuliani trying the whole thing with piss Christ, which yeah, you probably remember was a huge thing in New York City in the late 90s. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, you know, I was a, a teenager in rural upstate New York, and I was still aware of this and was like, that's bullshit. You know, that's some censorious bullshit. They shouldn't be doing that. Right. So, yeah. So, and yeah, a lot of stuff that the right was going after was something that they were alleging was blasphemous, offensive to Christians or, you know, promoted homosexuality or, or Satanism or something along those lines. Or was just irreverent. I mean, as, as recently as 2007, I believe, there was this uproar over um, a sculpture of a crucified Christ made out of chocolate. 
And, you know, there was this whole thing about it. I think it was called My Sweet Lord. It was such a great <laughs> piece of art. Um, and, you know, uh, the Catholic League and what's his face, O'Donohue, um, really flipped right. out about it and were like, this, you know, this shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. Is that guy even still alive? The Catholic I've, League guy? I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. You don't. Well, we haven't heard much of him lately, whether that's because he is no longer alive or sort of like that moment has passed um but yeah like you know the the chemistry will be dogma like that was being protested um but you know also in the 90s there was tipper gore al gore's wife who was like leading the charge to put parental label labeling on um music and video games i, I believe yeah um, yeah so that was a sort of you know think of the children thing it, it was you know yeah, that was the uh, the hearings when Frank Zappa referred to her and uh, and her cohort as the wives of Big Brother. Great moment. <laughs> um, right. So there and Tipper Gore is not a flaming liberal, but, you know, she, but she was, a, you know, the wife of the Democratic Party, so president or maybe she was it was just when he was a senator. But um, so there was that. Um, and then you know, the, the stuff around drawing a drawing or representation of the Prophet Muhammad um, was also a big flashpoint in the early aughts. And then, you know, the um, murder attack on the on Charlie Hebdo brought that, like, you know, fully into, into like, public discussion. Yeah, and I mentioned that in the piece, you know, th that was a real flashpoint for me, um, seeing the response of people on the left to this brutal attack, you know, this massacre of, of journalists uh, in Paris, people on the left were like, well, didn't they kind of deserve it because they were punching down? That was shocking to me. Right. Um, I, I think that was that was not the majority opinion, though. No, no, not left, at all. Um, yeah. And, you know, there was I mean, there was that huge march in paris or whatever that you know a lot of like national leaders attended it's all, this is everything that happened in the pre-trump era is sort of fuzzy to me at this point but um and you know other stuff like like the fatwa against salman rushdie there were always people on like multiple political valences who, who were saying like well like you just shouldn't have said that or you sort of like like major bed now you have to lie in it sort of thing like so i think that i don't know it's there's definitely a natural human impulse towards censorship and but i so i agree with you that it um really became much stronger on the left over the past decade especially during the trump era um and it also sort of assumed this moralistic character in a lot of ways of like if X happens, then children will die. Um, and maybe that's most related to like trans issues or something. Um, okay, Trump, <laughs> Trump is out of office, and um, I, I've seen some. At least the sensorial impulse has gotten more prominent on the right than it was during the Trump years, which was sort of a free for all because Trump was such a bombastic, offensive figure that you couldn't really <laughs> be like making a strong moral case for something when Trump was such an amoral character. But, you know, there continue to be like, there's always been efforts to ban books at public or elementary, middle school or high school libraries. Um, and the ones that are getting banned the most now are like this graphic novel about someone coming out as non-binary and things along those lines. So I, you know, the, <laughs> the impulse to use the power, not just like, name and shame but use the power of the government to say like we're not allowing this library book or this book to be in a library like that you know that that is returned once again from coming from the right i sort of i partially agree with you but i think that you're missing pieces of this picture to a certain extent because it's true that you know we've always had these efforts to ban books, um, you know, in school libraries from the right wing. That has not been an exclusively right wing thing 
within the past 10 years, um, you know, some of the most challenged books now, you know, it's still maybe majority coming from the right, but you also have things like the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian, which is being targeted by folks on the right for being profane, but being targeted by folks on the left because the author was accused of sexual misconduct. Mm -hmm. Um, You also have instances like, um, I believe it was in the Burbank school district where the principal just made an edict that no works that included the N-word could be, um, I don't know if they they removed them from the library, but they did uh, ban them from classrooms and from being taught in classrooms. And obviously this eliminates things like To Kill a Mockingbird and Huckleberry Finn, but it also eliminates an enormous swath of the African-American literary canon. So um, I think that, you know, so there's that, you know, it's it's not exclusively right wing thing, maybe still be majority right, but mm-hmm. people on the left have noticed that this is a useful tool for eliminating stuff and under the same pretenses, the idea is kids are going to be harmed by encountering this material, they're going to be harmed by encountering the N word in the context of a classroom discussion. So we've got to get rid of it. That's the one thing. The other thing is, there's a cultural aspect to this. And, you know, that is important, especially in a country where we have a really robust constitutional legal protection for speech, the government can only do so much to limit publications, you know, to, to limit, uh, you know, the, the, not just the spread of art, but, you know, the creation of it to decide what gets into the public sphere in the first place. Yeah, it's, um, I would I'm, say it's almost impossible for the U.S. government to prevent yeah, something. Yeah. Some, you know. I mean, on this front, like, I actually, my, my book banning take is, um, is like a nuanced one that will please absolutely nobody, which we can get into in just a second. But um, I think that the cultural aspect of things is hence very important here because the government lacks the power to suppress information the way that it might in another country. So instead, what you have is this kind of like private pressure system that will not only suppress books from being sold, as in the case of something like Irreversible Damage, which was removed from um, from Amazon for a period of time, but also this is the this is the book that there was a that's like, Abigail Schreier's of trans activism or um it was a reported book on um what people term rapid onset gender dysphoria which is basically just um addressing the fact that in recent years an enormous number of teenage girls with no prior evidence of gender dysphoria have started to come out as trans and like you saw this um, i think across the pond at the um tavistock clinic which is now closed they had something like a four thousand percent increase in teenage girls showing up at their doors where they used to have um mostly boys like littler boys who had had gender dysphoria from a young age anyway i'm getting kind of into the weeds here but um you know that book addressed the possibility of a social contagion amongst teenage girls with respect to gender identity. That's a really unpopular view on the left. Um, people really do not like to even have it discussed. And, you know, for a time it was successfully, this book was successfully suppressed, you know, from Amazon, which is of course a major bookseller. So there's stuff like that. And then there's also um, just, you know, things like pressure campaigns to drop authors who were perceived to be distasteful. Um, You know, there was this whole petition to, you know, no book deals for traitors was the title of it. Anybody who was seen as um, complicit in the January 6th riot um, was, you know, deemed like unpublishable by a bunch of people in publishing. And they signed this petition saying we shouldn't give these people book deals. Mm-hmm. Um, you well, also... There was a recent effort to protest the Amy Coney Barrett's memoir. Yeah, yeah, she is the most recent one. Um, and you also have things like the advent of sensitivity reading, you know, things that, that basically change the content of books pre-publication. Um, you've got, you know, just a lot of factors contributing to a, a, a big shift in what is even getting through the door at publishing houses. And I think this is something that, you know, if you want to talk about the state of free speech and free expression in the country, you have to include that in the picture or you're not getting a complete view of things. Right. Yeah. I mean, okay. But the counter argument would be if a group of publishing professionals or um, 
regular people start a petition or, a pub, or an open letter or something saying we don't want X published, like that is also speech. Um, they're not, you know, they're not threatening violence or using the co coercive power of the state to try to affect, you know, an end result they want. They're using a petition and social, like attempted social sanction or something. And that's just, that's politics. Like that's, that's always been the case. Um, it, it doesn't seem particularly, <laughs> particularly novel to me. Like there's always been petitions. There's always been a pressure to sign or not to sign a petition or, you know, or if. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Hollywood blacklist was a feat accomplished exclusively by private actors. There was no government involvement there, but we generally look back and see that as a bad thing. Right. But if, you know, if let's say Random House gave a big book contract to, you know, whoever like the most prominent elected official, like official was who was a trying to overturn the election January 6th. I don't know who that person would be. I mean, maybe it'd be Donald Trump who still has not published his memoir. Um, and then like a bunch of other Americans signed a petition saying, we think this is a bad idea or say, we're going to like, we don't want to work at a company that would publish Donald Trump. You know, that like that that's politics like that, that like we don't like this and we're going to express our opinions that we don't like this. Um, is that politics? No, is it? I mean, when you say I don't like this, let me ask you, is there a substantive difference between I don't like this and I want nobody else to be able to access this? There is a difference. I mean, one in the Hollywood blacklist you know, the studio system <laughs> made it such that if you couldn't work in a Hollywood studio, you couldn't do anything. Um, that, you know, that no longer exists because for various reasons, but in any like speech related domain, the internet makes it so that you can just do it yourself. Um, so it's really more about now, I think, esteem, yeah, social prestige and money, obviously. So if, you know, if somehow the, Amy Coney Barrett thing, like the people who didn't want her memoir published, let's say it succeeded somehow, a different publisher would pick her up and it would probably ultimately be good for her because more people would know that this book exists and it would make the same amount or possibly even more money. So I think a lot of these like cancel campaigns when it's about someone who is already in the public eye or makes a living by getting people's attention and like selling them something like it just backfires in the end. So I think that there's like <laughs> often it's a waste of time or misguided, but it's still just like it's it's still like speech versus speech unless you're, you know, like a boycott is speech um, or, or not. I mean, the boycott is equivalent to a speech act of say, like if someone says, I don't shop at Amazon anymore, I don't like how they treat their workers, you know, you can't say well, you, like you're taking money out of someone's pocket or something, you know, in, in a way that's that's unjust. Like people make well, their I think, consumer I think choices. What you're, I think that what you're pointing to is is more um, a question of freedom of association, which of course is you know another guaranteed freedom, and we have to take that seriously. Um, for me, I think that there's a, a pretty bright line between speaking critically about something that you consider to be harmful and trying to suppress the thing that you consider harmful. And, you know, when you try to, I mean, you can, you can go a step further and say, well, how effective is that? You know, whatever. Um, and I think that there is a conversation to be had about all of the instances of this that we never hear about, um, you know, where it's a non high profile person, a person who doesn't have an existing audience, um, you know, whose career is basically torpedoed before it ever gets off the ground. And this has happened, especially, um, you know, a place that I have a, a unique view into is the young adult fiction world, mm -hmm. where you have books that, you know, are um, canceled sometimes by authors themselves, like under, you know, basically, under extortive circumstances where it's sort of like nice reputation you have there, you know, it would be a shame if something happened to it. Um, and, you know, and they, they just kind of disappear, these authors, you know, whose, whose books were going to come out and then they don't, and then they're done. Right. Um, but, you know, leaving all of that aside, I 
still see the sensorial impulse as a problem. I see it as the problem to take it a step further, to not just say, I don't like this. I think it's harmful. I'm going to use my voice to say that I think it's harmful and why, and trying to suppress the thing that is harmful so that it no longer exists. That that makes sense to me. I would just say, you know, the <laughs> the the internet makes it almost impossible to suppress anything. Um, because anyone can upload anything, you know, somewhere. <laughs> you don't need a particular set of skills. You don't need to own a printing press. Yeah, or... I just don't think that really matters, Arya. You know, it's, you know, you're talking, you're basically talking about, you know, the difference between what somebody is trying to do versus what they can accomplish. Um, you know, I agree that it's very difficult to suppress any information, which is also the reason why I think that the, you know, Republican-led book bans against stuff in classrooms are also so toothless. The replicability of digital media just makes it so that right. what we commonly understand as a book ban is just not really a thing that is possible anymore. It's kind of an extinct creature. But there's what you can accomplish, and then there is what you are trying to do. And I'm talking about the latter. Right. And this is, I mean, having never taken a philosophy course, this is like getting into, you know, the the intentions of acts versus their end results, and which we, sh you know, which of those, how should we should weigh those in terms of um, assessing the ethics of the way people act. So I think you know, people have all sorts of bad impulses all the time, and we learn about them through <laughs> social media a lot. But sort of like, what is, I, I think it's more important to look at the end result. So in the end result of like trying to get some random, you know, some book that like it's announced, it's offensive to some group in some way, they cancel it. Like that's bad, um, mostly. But if the person <laughs> wanted to self-publish the book using modern technology, they could do so. Um, and if, if it was the type of person, I mean, I believe actually the first time we spoke to each other was related to the, some of these stories about young adult literature. You know, there was a guy who was like very involved in online, like dust ups involving speech and stuff. And then he had his own young adult novel. And then it turned out that like he was accused of appropriating Albanian heritage or something for one of his characters in a way that was offensive. And so he withdrew his own novel. So he was hoist by his own petard. So like, that's all sort of stupid. But then also like 50 years ago, if you submitted a manuscript and they didn't take it, you know, maybe it's because they're like, this sucks and no one will read it. And maybe they're wrong about that. But it was just like these individual idiosyncratic decisions, or maybe it was that, um, the author had a weird name and so they thought this will never sell the author has a weird name um weird quote unquote now maybe today having an unusual name would be a selling point 50 years ago it was you know a negative for for a publisher so like so those things change but it's it's still sort of like individual decisions that are right or wrong and i yes yeah, so i don't know if it's that if it's if it's all that different well, I would say it's not different. Um, and it was bad when it was happening in the past, too. You know, what you're pointing to is, yeah, you know, even as recently as 30 years ago, somebody might submit a, a LGBT themed book to a publisher and the publisher would say, this is too gay. We're not publishing it. Now, if that happened today, there would be outrage um, and and rightfully so. But I think, you know, the the fact that it wouldn't have been met with outrage at the time does not mitigate the fact that the culture was less rich for the lack of, you know, books that challenged the kind of prevailing orthodoxy. If that's always the case, you know, go back as far as you want, um, you know, when stuff is not getting through for reasons that have everything to do with it making people uncomfortable and nothing to do with the quality of the work, um, that you know, that leaves us bereft in some way. Right. I, I guess I would, the th additional thing I would bring in is that 30 years ago, someone submits a manuscript, the editor says, this is too gay. Um, they would probably say, this is too gay, it can't sell. Um, or this is too black, it can't sell. Or this is too Jewish, it can't sell. Now, maybe today they'll say, this isn't gay enough, it won't sell, we need more gay. But it's ultimately like, as, you know, you, you're a published, a successful published author, you know, like they're, in, in it to make money. And if you hit the right, you know, if you overshoot or undershoot in your level of 
whatever, you know, quality of writing versus how gay the book is and it doesn't sell, like the publisher's going to be less likely to want to publish the, the next novel. So like- You would think, and yet publishing is um, in many ways almost exempt from the pressures of the market in this way. I mean, it's, it's probably too complicated for us to go into at this point because we've been talking for almost an hour. But um, yeah, you know, and it's- it's very strange, like publishing is um, an industry in which most books never turn a profit, like the vast majority. Right. Um, and so what you have is a very, very few books that make millions and millions of dollars, sell millions and millions of copies, and those keep the entire operation afloat. Right. But if you, you know, if the, if the editor thinks it won't sell or the agent thinks it won't sell, like there's various reasons for that. It could be this sucks. It could be this is too niche. No one is interested in it. It could be it violates some like cultural taboo or, or something along those lines of being either too gay or not gay enough. And like that's and, and maybe they're, you know, all those people are wrong. Like nobody knows anything in a lot of creative fields. And the difference is 30 years ago, if your novel was judged too gay, you are basically out of luck of ever getting it published and printed, whereas today you can use technology to publish it and basically distribute yourself. And then maybe maybe it'll become a giant hit. Yeah, well, you can fling your book into the void and see what happens. It's true. I think we should probably zoom out a little bit and just, you know, because I think this is maybe sort of the bigger picture is all of our cultural products right now are coming out of spaces in which not only is there very, very little representation of, you know, political conservatives, but in which it would be very, very professionally risky, um, maybe even like professional suicide to admit that you voted for Trump, who was a democratically elected president who served for four years. Um, and I think that that, you know, you can think that's great, or you can think that's bad, or you can think it's some mix of the two, but it certainly has an impact on the culture. No, that's that's true, and um, and you know, I, I would be more of the let a thousand flowers bloom like perspective, <laughs> um, but you know, the Manhattan-based <laughs> New York publishing industry is not the world anymore because, and you know, this is the same for any creative field. The you know, you, you, the gatekeepers have been largely removed because of technology. So if someone wants to do weirdo art that like they, <laughs> that probably no one will consume, they can do it and post it on SoundCloud or Instagram or Twitter <laughs> mostly. Whereas 40 years ago, they would have just been doing it in their basement and no one would ever know about it. Um, they probably won't make money or become famous, but like very few people make money or become famous doing creative work to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, and, and then like Amy Coney Barrett's book is being published. Um, so like there's a thriving, there is a thriving conservative publishing market that publishes, you know, Dinesh D'Souza and Amy Coney Barrett and, and so and serious stuff and, nonsense stuff like that is a niche that, that exists as well and i it seems highly unlikely that the people who signed that petition trying to get her amy coney barrett's book contract canceled are gonna win like i think it yeah i think it's just a backfiring way to remind more people that oh amy coney barrett has a memoir that's gonna be coming out at some point so i yeah i think it's that's it's more of a my critique of that would just be like you're shooting yourself in the foot you should just ignore these things because there's so much stuff out there that people move on to something else, whereas you make a big to-do about any given cultural product, like it just grabs more people's attention in general. And yeah, that's how like Jordan Peterson becomes famous because everybody, he makes a bunch of people mad and you know, now we all know who he is. That'd be like my critique of the like cancel, cancel culture brigade sort of stuff is, is less it's like deeply, <laughs> like not that it's immoral or ill-intentioned, but it's just self-defeating and people should do something else with their time. Hmm. Okay. Um, okay. We've gone over time. Is, so we should probably begin to wrap up. Is there anything else you want to mention from the piece that we haven't touched on? Um, 
Gosh, I don't know. I, I'm I'm curious whether uh, you know, as we started out this conversation, you sounded very skeptical as to whether I was in fact a secret conservative. What do you <laughs> What do you think now? Okay, I th well, I think you are essentially a moderate Democrat, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you do have strong libertarian leanings, which of course cut across the standard right left. American, you know, um, dichotomy. So, you know, there's libertarians who are left libertarians and right libertarians, and it has to do, I mean, the traditional sense was economic versus social, and maybe that has shifted somewhat, um, where a social libertarian would see Joe Rogan and Donald Trump and Matt Gates as more their, like, fellow travelers than the librarians <laughs> or, or something. Um, but... And yeah, and I think the opening anecdote of the piece and what we talked about in this conversation of you being open to taking any job and having lunch with anyone um, indicates sort of a general openness that is not ideologically coded normally, but at this moment, maybe it reads more as, as right than left. Isn't that, it interesting that, that ideological ideological openness is now coded as conservative? Like, what kind of a weird through the looking glass moment are we in when that's right. the case? It is it is unusual. I think it is receding somewhat. We'll have to see. I mean, some of it depends on how this election actually turns out and so forth. Because there's a catechism on the left, but there's a catechism on the right as well. One of which is that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump by deep state actors. That seemed to be a pretty losing message this go around. And maybe, you know, Pope Donald's pronouncements, <laughs> people have to recite the catechism less. So that would be good. Um, oh God, but... you just gave me an image, like a mental image of Donald Trump wearing the Pope's regalia, <laughs> which is not that, thanks for putting that in my head. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna put that into one of those AI generators and see what they spit out. Pope, you know, Pope Trump. Um, it, yeah, it seems grotesque, but um, but you know, his he says something, and there's millions of Americans who who fall in line, um, and and that's a fact that we have that's bad and we have to grapple with. And hopefully, he shuffles off this mortal coil sooner rather than later, so that his specific like personal malevolence <laughs> is no longer an active force. But you know. If you are running for a House seat as a Republican in 2022, you had to say, yeah, I think the election was stolen or you, you know, might lose. And I don't think a lot of these people believe that. So that's just, you know, it, it, it manifests in different ways in different areas. Um, and there's a group of online activists who want you to, um, you know, say certain words or certain phrases or not say certain words or phrases. And they'll get mad at you if you do. I feel like their power is is waning, um, but who knows? Yeah, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Okay, so the piece will be linked in the show notes. Why I keep getting mistaken for a conservative at nationalreview.com. Um, you are also the co-host of Feminine Chaos, a podcast with Phoebe Maltz-Bovey um, that I was <laughs> involved in the creation of a little bit, and people should check that out um anything else you want to mention or promote you have a, you have a, a novel coming out i do my next novel is called you must remember this and it will be released from william morrow on january 10th 2023 and uh you can pre-order that wherever you buy books okay and i'll put an amazon link to that and as well and in your previous novel i think it's coming out of paperback is that correct uh, yeah it just came out in paper book uh paperback excuse me that one was called no one will miss her and it was nominated for the Edgar Award, and people seem to like it. So yeah, congratulations yeah. on that book. We did a conversation still on the blogging platform when that came out. I guess like That's eighteen months right. or so ago. Um, and that yeah, I, people should check out that book, which is a fun thriller mystery. Um, or the conversation that we had about it. Um, okay, and you you do continue to be on Twitter. I do. Where else am I going <laughs> to, you know, amplify my my dumb jokes that I make when I'm high with my husband about, you know, the TV that I'm watching, if not on Twitter? Right. And and people can follow you. So what's your what is your handle on Twitter? It's Kat Rosenfield. Just my name. There is an I in my last name. 
So just, you know, don't don't bother poor cat Rosenfeld, who I pity immensely is that, uh, she, there's a, there is that person out there there is a cat rosenfeld and god i'm so sorry if you're listening um for all of the abuse that you received that was intended <laughs> for me right there's a guy who um is a reporter whose name is very similar to matt gates it's like matt Gert, gertz with an o or something and oh, he, yes. he, has, he has a running bit of how he gets all of matt gates's <laughs> hatred and he's just very commonly like no different person um yeah people who are full of rage but very careless readers make up uh, a surprisingly large contingent of like the most toxic internet personalities yes oh no that's that's very well put okay and i'm on twitter or you know people can follow me and decide whether or not i i'm engaging in bullying behavior and you know or they could pick fights with me and um or maybe they could start a petition to get me to behave better on Twitter or um, try to cancel me or whatever. I mean, the website still exists for now and we'll see how it, how it develops. And I'm on Twitter at REACW, you know, people can rate and review this podcast and tell their friends and stuff like that. Okay. Um, I don't you, think Kat. you should be, I don't think you should be canceled, Aria. I think you should just be nicer. Well, I, I wouldn't expect you to want to cancel me. In fact, it would be quite hypocritical if you led the cancel REA charge, given what we've had in this conversation. But, you know, I'll the incentives on there are not to be nice, like things that are nice, you know. They only go viral when people get mad about when someone is happy that they drink coffee with their husband in the garden in the morning. Regular nice thoughts don't generally attract attention. So the incentives are to <laughs> let your not nice, the not nice parts of your personality uh, out to play and, and uh, yeah but be the change bad. you want to see in the world man <laughs> okay yeah I'll, it's i'll try to buck the system and uh be be a better a more responsible citizen of of elon musk twitter okay anything anything else you want to add or should we wrap up <laughs> let's wrap up thanks so okay. much for having me okay well thank you for coming on uh thanks to all the listeners out there we'll see you again next time